Every part of the definition is as important as any other. And if a child doesn't come within it, then it isn't human. And that means it doesn't have a soul. It is not in the image of God. It is an imitation. And in the imitations, there is always some mistake. Only God produces perfection. So although deviations may look like us in many ways, they cannot really be human. We are reading all genres and pulp fiction for the very first time. Each month, we pick a new theme. We try to keep all of our references to books and authors that we've previously read together for this podcast, so we can draw connections between genres. Can we create a web of connections between books in different genres and time periods? I don't know, but we're going to try. In previous months, we've read utopian and dystopian novels, and now we are in the midst of our post-apocalyptic month. This month we have read I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream by Harlan Ellison, Deus Irae by Philip K. Dick and Roger Zelazny, Speech Sounds by Octavia Butler, and today we read The Chrysalids by John Wyndham. Does the author choose to end on a note of hope or despair? What kind of vision of humanity or inhumanity does the author give us when civilization falls away? I'm Zach, and this week I'm interested in plot construction and whether we should consider this a deus ex machina. I'm John, and this week I'm interested in the way the book speculates about the evolution of mankind. I'm Bob, and last week I was interested in what dreams we can or cannot hold on to in the hell of post-apocalypse. This week I'm wondering what happens if our dreams, they if they are so concrete... That we cannot compromise, even under the threat of extinction. What happens to those dreams? We start chrysalids with David and Sophie, two kids growing up in Christian extremism in this hellscape. Everyone is in everyone's business. Neighbors report neighbors for having extra toes or being mutants. It was easy to feel this extremism as wrong. It's too much. It condemns people too easily. Especially when we have to exile Sophie for having 12 toes. Still, I found the future of humanity, if we did in fact become spider people, somewhat frightening. Did you guys have a similar reaction or was it just hate for the Puritans? In a sense, it wasn't the existence of large tracts of land completely reduced to glass from nuclear explosions or like the threat of giant mutant cats stalking you in the woods. None of that was really what was scary about this book. It was this religion and ideology that they had developed where all the crops, all the animals, and all the people need to be in God's true image, which is to say they need to look the way that species used to look before the bombs went off. And I think that what's really human about this book is that they've developed a real snitch culture here where everyone feels like it's their personal duty to detect the deviations and mutations amongst themselves and then drive them out of the community. I feel like this was a very real, very like present-day fear that, that John Wyndham is tapping into here. I find it very disconcerting the way these people fixate on this idea of God's true image, especially because they actually have no idea what God's true image really was. 
they are quoting, they only have really two books that remain. And one of them is this book of so-called repentances in which every human being should have two hands and two feet. Every, and on each of these hands and feet, there should be five fingers and five toes. They have this very fixed idea of the purity of their race. And they're even willing to put it above their own family. So in this book, the sister of the main character's mother, his aunt, Aunt Harriet, has a baby. And she brings this baby to the house and says, oh, look at my baby, isn't it wonderful? But the problem is the baby has not yet been seen by the inspector who regulates the purity of these babies. Are they up to standard? And it turns out that her baby has a small, small mutation. We don't know what it is. All we know is it's very, very minor. And she goes to her sister for help. And the sister absolutely turns her down and categorically turns her down. And the the father of the main character, this boy David, who is a preacher, just lays into her and just absolutely destroys her. And he says to her, you know, I do not understand how you dared come here to a God-fearing house with such a suggestion. Worse still, you don't show an atom of shame or remorse. And Harriet's voice was steadier as she answered, Why should I? I've done nothing to be ashamed of. I'm not ashamed. I'm only beaten. So what's happening here is essentially a child of the aunt in the family is essentially condemned to death for some small mutation. And the highest priority is quite clearly here, just ensuring the purity of the race. It's very, very difficult to sympathize with. Though, John, it does appear that not letting mutations get too out of hand, it does appear to be in the best interest of their survival. Because, I mean, this this ideology they have doesn't just come out of nowhere. It specifically arises in the context of they are living in a post-nuclear bomb society where mutations are spiraling out of control in the areas that are that are radioactive and causing quite dangerous mutations that threaten their survival. Bob, I think it's interesting how you talk about dreams of the past because it seems like their fixation with purity is itself a kind of a dream, not only in the sense of it being like an ideal that they strive for, but it's dreamlike in the sense of it being really difficult to interpret just what it is. It's hard to grasp. It's ephemeral. Like here's Uncle Axel and he's talking about the idea of the true image and how it came to dominate their thinking. Quote, you start to ask yourself, well, what real evidence have we got about the true image? You find that the Bible doesn't say anything to contradict the people of that time being like us. But on the other hand, it doesn't give any definition of man either. No, the definition comes from Nicholson's repentances, and he admits that he was writing some generations after tribulation came. So you find yourself wondering whether he knew what was in the true image or whether he only thought he was. So they seem to have only one document from before the bombs fell, and that's the Bible. And then the only other document they have turns out to have been written after the bombs fell, what they call the tribulation. Although this doesn't seem to be common knowledge, people don't generally seem to recognize that Nicholson could have no idea what he's talking about. Okay, I got you. Nicholson's a nut. And whenever Jacob, Joseph, whatever David's father, his name is, whenever he talks, it's easy to feel like these people are nuts. They're way too harsh. It's not fair at all, especially when you ban a little girl just for having six toes. That's absurd. But 
Still, when the voice of reason, Uncle Axel, is kind of saying, yes, they seem absurd, but they have their own fears, and some of those fears are becoming squirrel people who live in the woods. I started thinking, oh no, this is kind of horrifying. What would happen if we did turn into these fringes people, if we did turn into these non-humans? Is this like the hills have eyes? Is this a kind of post-nuclear mutation? And could I handle living with the goons with Lothar and the hill people? <laughs> Lothar. But you know, I, it does make me think about this. Like, So I definitely accept the point that you're making. This is probably a post-nuclear world when mutations were a threat to survival. And it's a rational enough response to say, okay, we're going to do our best to maintain purity according to whatever this guy says is right. There's a certain logic to this. But I wonder if at the same time, they're not making their own problem worse by expelling everything that's even a slight mutation and letting it breed weirder and weirder outside of the limits of Wacknuck. You know, the fringes are a real horrifying place, but it seems like it's just going to get worse and worse if mutations breed with mutations breed with mutations. So it's almost like the more they you know, cast these people out, the more they have to keep out. And it seems quite a little bit difficult to sustain. And what's interesting here is in this book, there are a group of telepaths, David, and he has, there's, I think, eight of them that are telepaths. So they can't be identified by the the people of Wacknuck as mutants, but in fact, they're a kind of a new breed of mutant. They have this telepathic ability. And later in the book, they have to go on the run when they're eventually found out by the people of Wacknuck. And, you know, the fringes are very Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But, you know, you, you do wonder if they're making their own problems worse. I mean, we think of this girl, Sophia. She has six toes and that's her only problem. But then she's forced out into the fringes where she has to have children with this Spider-Man with absurdly long like legs and arms. She's out here fighting for her life. So it seems like they're making things a lot worse by expelling everything that's not completely and utterly according to the norm. I think that's a good read of things. And I do think that in a sense, there is a sort of subconscious awareness of this problem within the town itself, because there are characters that make mention that the more people they banish, the more the population of the fringes swells. And ultimately, I feel like the biggest threat to the town is the raids on resources and food that the people in the fringes make upon the town. The more people grow up in the fringes, the more, I guess you could say, foot soldiers, henchmen, or something like that, wandering bands of raiders they have to to go take on these farms. Swinging in and taking all the beans. I think that that is the point of the bean man. If they had been more harsh and just killed the mutants, they wouldn't be having these problems. Here's what the bean man says. It's the same all around. Slackness, lackness, sorry, slackness, laxness, nobody caring beyond a bit of lip service. You can see it everywhere nowadays, but God is not mocked, bringing tribulation down on us again. They are. A season like this is the start. I'm glad I'm an old man and not likely to see the fall of it, but it's coming. You mark my words, said the bean man. Pushing people out to the fringes, maybe this leniency, is what's causing these thriving, rampant mutations. There is a tension in this town. Even when our main group of characters, uh, David and his fellow telepaths, when, when they escape, 
they mention it wouldn't sit right with them, that is the Puritans, to kill us, the telepaths, when they already know us. So even these characters recognize that while the Puritans are nuts and tyrannical, they already know these people and they're not willing to kill them. They're not willing to wipe them out if they already have to sympathize with them. I do think it's interesting how there's this discrepancy between the stories being told about the fringes, you know, kind of bedtime horror tales that include people like Harry Jack, who eats children for supper. And then you compare these this hype we have about the, the fringes versus what our narrators actually see. I think that the fear of the fringes might be worse than the actual reality. The, the horror of the fringes is more so an economic and a political condition than really anything having to do with the mutations in and of themselves. Hey, Harry Jack's no joke. I've seen him myself, and he is indeed very hairy. But do you think this policy of purifying the race is actually working for these people? I mean, or is it just mere dogma? Well, I, I think the, the approaching famine is a good sign that this intense purity is going to destroy these people. Not just my righteous moral indignation against these Nazis, but the fact that they're going hungry in order to maintain purity because they won't eat any of this year's crops or any of the livestock because they all have mutations. Yeah, times do get difficult for them, but I never got the sense that they would hold on to their beliefs all the way until starvation, into their grave. In fact, they seem to show time and time again that they are willing to bend the rules. They will exploit the ambiguities, especially when it's beneficial for them to do so. Take, for example, these great horses, which are massive, maybe twice the size of a normal horse. I'm thinking girth, not so much as height. That would be in ter incredibly terrifying to have a, a twice as tall horse. But there's still clearly a deviation. And these horses, these great horses, are cleared by the bureaucrats as being legal, as being natural. And it's heavily implied that everyone knows that there's this obvious and immediate economic benefit to clearing them. So they just kind of look the other way. And the poor bean man is mocked by the narrator. So he's not that serious of a character. The idea of his his extreme purity and maybe Jacob, David's father's extreme purity, is pretty over the top. So when the bean man mentions the mockery of the purity laws, which is represented by those horses, our narrator then goes on to say, before our narrator has kind of had this change of heart, he's still living as one of these who obeys the purity laws, he says, he went on grumbling and spitting with disgust, a venomously puritanical old man, talking about the bean man. So clearly not all patriots, but only the venomous patriots are the ones who are totally unbending about these purity laws. But it certainly is interesting that they're, they're willing to bend the rules when it comes to, you know, great horses, but they're much less willing to accept deviations when they consider it to be a threat to their society. So we've already talked about how, you know, maybe mutation itself is a threat to society. Maybe mutated food isn't good for them. Maybe, you know, too many mutated people, maybe society would get dysfunctional, perhaps. But there's something interesting about this new kind of mutation, these telepaths. You know, there's this real sense that once they find out about the telepaths, you know, it's it's not just a threat to them like, uh, you know, someone with extra toes is a threat or some bizarrely shaped beans are a threat. But, you know, it's like a threat to their own survival. This is quite clearly a superior group of people. These are regular people they've lived with 
their whole lives, except for they have this ability that they can't even comprehend. That there's no argument to say against them being superior people. They just are superior people. They have something that they don't have. This reminds me of a book we read last week, Speech Sounds by Octavia Butler, in which the people who are completely impaired and therefore have no language, whenever they see someone who can still use words, they will kill them out of pure jealousy and pure fear. They can't stand the idea that these people have an ability that they don't have, even on this subrational level. And here I think it's very similar. Uh, there's a quote here by another one of the telepaths. You understand what that means, David. They are scared of us, ready to break us down in the attempt to find out more about us once they catch us. You mustn't let them get hold of Rosalind or Petra. Far better to kill them yourself than let that happen to them. You understand? So mutations can be detrimental to society, but at the same time, as we know, mutations are the way that species evolve. Without mutation, there isn't any evolution. So with mutation, perhaps there is something worse. But without mutation, there's never going to be anything better. And I think this really illustrates a problem that these Waknukians have that I'm not sure they're very aware of, which is that banishing all mutations really puts short-term survival or normativity over a long-term flourishing for the species at large. And it's easy for us to see this and know the importance of mutation and evolution. But these people, these Puritans, they don't have that information. These poor bastards only have two books. They've got the Bible and they have Nicholson's Repentances. So the laws seem fairly unbending on humans and food, or at least the sentences are harsher. Maybe ingesting or becoming a mutation is the greater threat, more so than riding on a eminently tall horse. Eminently, preeminently. I thought it was really interesting how they didn't even want to eat mutated plants or animals. It was like this really interesting detail that characterized them because they didn't seem to have a clear idea about how mutations work. It was almost as if they thought you could catch a mutation like a cold. Yeah, I don't even think there's a sense that they rationalize it that much. It's it's like, here's the dogma, here's the script, this is what Nicholson says, whoever Nicholson is. And anything that deviates from what Nicholson says must be wrong. This, you know, it, this is very much like what we would consider today to be a backward society. You know, they're out in the middle of nowhere, they don't really have much in the way of, I don't know, a scientific community. All they have is these two books, like Bob said, and they, they stick to the letter very, very rigorously. But there are some members of this society that do sort of have a larger idea of what society is or what society can be. So at the beginning of the book, we learn that David, this boy, who was the son of the preacher, even before he realizes he's telepathic, has these dreams of like a wonderful advanced society, but he doesn't know where they come from, but they're very vivid. Is it a time before the tribulation? Is it his imagination? Is he seeing into the future somehow? What's going on? Well, turns out it's New Zealand. And at the end of the book, as the story is resolved, he finally makes it to New Zealand. And this is what he says when he, he sees it. It's, it was just as I had seen it in my dreams. A brighter sun than Wacknuck ever knew poured down upon the wide blue bay where the lines of white top breakers crawled slowly to the beach. Small boats, some with coloured sails and some with none, were making for the harbour, already dotted with craft. 
Clustered along the shore and thinning as it stretched back toward the hills, lay the city with its white houses embedded among green parks and gardens. I could even make out the tiny vehicles sliding along the wide tree-bordered avenues. A little inland, beside a square of green, a bright light was blinking from a tower and a fish-shaped machine was floating to the ground. It was so familiar that I almost misgave. For a swift moment, I imagined that I should wake up to find myself back in my bed in Wacknook. So here, David finally sees the society that he's been dreaming of his entire life. And it kind of almost reminds me of utopia at the end. And I think the fact that he has this bigger idea of society is is very important for the story. I think that it relies on utopian stereotypes and imagery so that it can paint New Zealand for the reader in these broad strokes so that we can quickly get the picture. But I wouldn't say, though, that the book itself takes on any utopian fiction tropes or does any kind of hybrid genre work. We don't get this idea or this account of how this society works or or anything, you know, what its institutions are, for example. New Zealand exists really as this kind of hypermodern foil to the rural backwards Canada. What have you got against Canada, Zach? Is this some kind of personal thing? This book is definitely set in northeastern Canada. I'm not a geography expert. I just like books. But take a look at this line. For a long time, it had been disputed whether any parts of the world other than Labrador and the big island of Newf were populated at all. They were all thought to be badlands, which had suffered the full weight of tribulation. So... Labrador and Newfoundland, these are Canadian provinces, and they're talking about a big island to the northeast being inhabited by Amazonian-type people elsewhere in the book, which I can only assume is Greenland. Furthermore, when they sail, they sail south, and they see cities that are just bombed out and reduced to glass. And I mean, that just, it seems like they're sailing down the east coast of the United States. Amazonian-type people? Is that where Jeff Bezos is from? But yeah, I think you're right about it not being a utopia. You know, utopian tropes are used, but it's not itself a utopia. It does have other common speculative fiction tropes, though, like war between different groups of more or less advanced people, telepathy and special abilities. When they see the Sealanders, the Sealanders propose this sort of historical narrative of evolution of man. The, you know, the move from one species to another species to another species and this sort of endless movement of progress. Quote, if the process shocks you, it's because you have not been able to stand off and knowing what you are, see what a difference in kind must mean. Your minds are confused by your ties and your upbringing. You are still half thinking of them as the same kind as yourselves. And that is why they have you at a disadvantage, for they are not confused. Also, I think there's an interesting narrative here that we've seen before in books like Red Star by Alexander Bogdanov, which is an example of speculative fiction in which there is something of a superior race, in this case Martians, and that this superior race of necessity will have to perhaps destroy an inferior race, which in in that narrative is people from Earth and also potential people on Venus. And here there's the same thing. The Sealanders propose a historical narrative in which they are kind of obliged to obliterate any inferior race. And that's just how things work. So it's very interesting. What they say is this. They, the Waknukians, can see quite well that if if they are to survive, they have not only to preserve themselves from deterioration, but they must protect themselves even more from the serious threat of a superior variant. So this 
Sealand woman who's from a very advanced society in which telepathy is just the norm now is actually able to understand the whackknuckers. But it's very disconcerting for us because she places us humans in the same category. And I think we're really forced to contemplate our own prejudices and accept almost the fact that it's natural to fight for one species. And ironically, this more advanced people is able to understand the less advanced Wachnuckians much more so than the telepaths are able to understand and empathize with them, even though they've lived among them their whole lives. Hmm, yes, the the new grass that should be greener is still threatening this future. And so their journey through this hellscape, through this black glass, is bookended by prime eugenicists. We've got the, the Wackenoffs at the beginning holding on to their past perfection, and we have these future New Zealanders looking forward, looking forward to the future and to their perfection. Though, they do admit that one day they will be superseded, but that they will also inevitably fight tooth and nail to stay supreme. I really appreciate that Wyndham, despite painting the Wachnikites as these troglodytes, he doesn't necessarily make the New Zealanders good people either. When they descend from their ships, they drop down these spiderweb-like threads down upon all the people below them. Here's a long quote, but bear with me because it's important. Quote, even the leaves on the trees were unable to rustle. A sudden shock of realization jerked a question from Rosalind. They're not, they're not all dead. I didn't understand. I thought, yes, the sealant woman told her simply, they're all dead. The plastic threads contract as they dry. A man who struggles and entangles himself soon becomes unconscious. It is more merciful than your arrows and spears. Rosalind shivered. Perhaps I did too. There was an unnerving quality about it. Something quite different from the fatal issue of a man-to-man fight, or from the casualty role of an ordinary battle. We were puzzled, too. The New Zealanders' indiscriminate, emotionless killing really unsettles our narrator. And as readers, I think it unsettles us, too, because it doesn't look like any positive or utopian vision of the future that today we strive for. They seem to view anyone who hasn't mutated in their particular fashion to be subhuman and not even worthy of life. In fact, now that I'm talking, I can't help but feel that the only difference between the Wachnuckians and the New Zealandites is that the New Zealanders have better technology. I agree. And there are also multiple characters in this story, uh, not just among the the Wachnuckoi, not just among the Zealanders, but even among the telepaths. There's a real acknowledgement that in these difficult post-apocalypse times, it's a matter of fact for any sentient creature even, that at some time they may be forced to kill or be killed. And it's definitely not something we like to contemplate in our, what we might call pre-apocalyptic society today. You know, it's like, it's very easy to be like pacifist. I know I wouldn't kill anybody. I don't believe in killing people. We should be nice. But for any of us, if we're being honest... We, we might have to kill someone at some point or be killed ourselves. And this is just a brutal fact of life that I think Wyndham makes very, very clear in this narrative. You know, I think the the only real moral center of the book, I think, is is this character of Uncle Axel. You're talking about the Axel that wrote Welcome to the Jungle, right? No. 
<laughs> no, in this case, Axel, in this case, Axel is a sailor, and he is left with from this experience crippled with a gammy leg. Perhaps this is one reason for, that he can empathize quite well with both so-called mutants, but also with the people who inhabit Wacknuck. He's able to support the telepaths when nobody else will support them. And without his guidance, it's really hard to imagine how this the main character, David, and the others would even have survived. I love this quote from Uncle Axel. I think this really you know, encapsulates the, the more positive aspect of the book. He says, Souls are just counters for churches to collect, all the same value, like nails. No, what makes man, man, is mind. It's not a thing, it's a quality. And minds aren't all the same value. They're better or worse. And the better they are, the more they mean. Now, this could be interpreted in a way that suggests that, you know, that the, the Sealanders can make this argument. You know, man is mind, our minds are better than your minds, so we can kill you. But that's not really his attitude. I think he has a much more humane attitude as opposed to a transhuman, transhumanist attitude. And he has a much bigger perspective on the world than the Wacknuckers. And I think really his attitude to me bridges the gap between those two, that, between that divide, between those two people, between the more advanced people and the less advanced people. You know, he has empathy for those who are less advanced and tolerance or modesty or humility in the face of others who are superior to him, such as his own nephew, although he's not actually his nephew, David. I think that Axel is really the stand-in for the author's voice here. His character's worldly perspective really aligns with what I perceive to be the overall message of the book. So speaking of Uncle Axel, I was going to say, maybe he is a cold-blooded killer. But maybe you're right, John. Maybe that's one of the, the themes in this book, is if it comes down to it, we all will kill. The future New Zealander woman, she says, when uh, when our main characters react to this killing and think it's a little distasteful, she says, quote, It is not pleasant to kill any creature, but to pretend that one can live without doing so is self-deception. There has to be meat in the dish. There have to be vegetables forbidden to flower, seeds forbidden to germinate. It is neither shameful nor shocking that it should be so. It is simply a part of the great revolving wheel of natural economy. Okay, so I'm curious what you think of the ending of this book. The The New Zealanders, they, they drop out of the sky, they kill everyone, they whisk our heroes away to safety. Is this a deus ex machina? So a little background, deus ex machina basically just means that some outside character comes in, resolves all the loose plot threads. It comes from Greek theater. You know, you get all the characters into some tricky, perhaps unresolvable conflict and then they would either use a crane to have a to have a person playing a god come down from the sky and resolve all the conflicts with the wave of a hand, leaving a happy ending behind. Or alternatively, you could have like a trapdoor in the floor and have them come up from Hades on a rising platform lifted by like ropes and pulleys, which is admittedly a very cool way to emerge out of hell. So 
in the story, in the plot, the, the person who is turned into a donkey gets turned back into a man. The dead lover gets brought back to life. The grieving widow doesn't have to seek revenge, you know, things like that. But the problem is, is that as far back as Aristotle and even all the way to today, people say that this is a very lazy form of writing because the solution to the plot doesn't come from the logic of the story itself. It lacks creativity. The author just gets everyone into this big mess, doesn't know how to fix it, and so they have a god come down from heaven and solve the problems. Is that what's going on in this book? I'm wondering, was this shoehorned? Was this ending, this this deus ex machina, as it were, shoehorned? I want to think back to our past genre books. Have we run into this kind of thing before? So thinking back to that scene in Ian Fleming's Casino Royale, when James Bond, he loses everything. His mission is over. But then... The chipper CIA agent swoops in with a fat stack of cash, and James Bond can continue gambling to try and save the day. Could we consider this a deus ex machina? Okay, well, with this book, John Wyndham, to his credit, definitely lets the readers know that the New Zealanders exist throughout the text. They're the dreams, the early contact, the the Zealanders are kind of telecasted from the beginning of the book, but we don't see them until the end. But I think that your example of Ian Fleming's Casino Royale is really interesting. But a couple things work against that being a deus ex machina moment. Like for one, this moment you're describing happens in the middle of the book. So while Bond loses all of his money gambling, and that's a bad thing, it's not part of the climax of the book. It's just simply another difficulty that he has to overcome on the way to the climax and the eventual resolution. And then secondly, Bond's CIA agent friend, Felix Leiter, he doesn't just show up out of nowhere to help the protagonist. He doesn't just rise out of hell using ropes and pulleys. He's actually part of the narrative from the beginning of the book, and he's specifically in the role of a helper. So when James Bond gets in the pickle and Felix Leiter helps him, it's really not that much of a surprise. It's all part of the logic of the narrative. Although he does have a smooth southern voice, which I do assume would be the voice of the devil, and it is promised that the gambling is the most important part of the book in the beginning of the book. Turns out to not be so, but it's a false promise, perhaps. But so I guess we can say that it doesn't count anyway, because there's there's precedent for the arrival of Felix Leiter. He doesn't really do anything until he brings the money, but we do know he's got Bond's back. That's why he's there. Hmm. Okay, so then I can't think of any other candidates from our genre books that might count as a deus ex machina. So I think this, Chrysalids, is our first one. Right, and I still feel like it's an open question whether this is one. You know, I'm not 100% ready to condemn this book, but I feel like the reason why we don't see that many of them in the books we've read before is because these kinds of endings tend to get filtered out on like a publisher or editor level of the manuscript. I think that people generally recognize this kind of ending as a bad writing example, and an editor will usually tell the author, rewrite this, come back in two weeks, and we'll discuss further. Yeah, I actually disagree. I don't think this is a deus ex machina, because as you already mentioned, the Sealanders are forecasted well in advance and are an important part of the narrative throughout. As you said, the dreams, the fact that we know from you know two-thirds of the way into the book that the Sealanders are on their way. Moreover, if it wasn't for the Sealanders and the fact that the telepaths knew the Sealanders were coming, I think the telepaths might have acted very differently. Maybe they would have joined the fringe people in their resistance against the Wacknuckazoids, 
maybe they would have just chosen to kill themselves. So I don't see it as a deus ex machina because to me, a deus ex machina comes out of nowhere and nothing the any of the characters do contributes to their own salvation at the end or the resolution of the the plot. Whereas here, the characters are very active in using the information that the Sealands are on the way and making decisions in the light of that. So I don't think it is a deus ex machina. Okay, let me think about this. Okay, so our main characters, they're fleeing the purity laws. They're fleeing their old town. People are out to kill them. They're going to track them down. They do talk about killing themselves if it comes to capture, as capture will be much more painful than death. Then when they reach the fringes and they crawl through the fringes, they meet the Spider-Man and old Sophie again. It's been decades since they've seen them. Reminder, Sophie is the girl with six toes. Spider-Man is David's estranged uncle, and his arms and legs are disproportionately long. This Spider-Man is leading a revolution, a revolt, an organized revolt against the purity laws. True, our main characters find the Spider-Man fairly unsavory, but do you think that they they might have to finally, because of necessity to survive themselves, will they have to join his revolution, or would they have had to have joined his revolution and fought against the impending normalness? In a word, no. Just because the protagonist's position with regards to the fringe people isn't ambiguous. Our protagonist was beaten up, dragged to the woods, and told that he would be killed if he ever came back to the fringe came back to the fringe people village. Furthermore, Rosalind is going to be turned into a sex slave and make babies for daddy long legs. So at the end, they're very much left with three opposing parties. Oh, also, I think I disagree with your characterization of the the Spider-Man because it's not that he's necessarily leading a revolt against the purity laws. It's not an ideological revolution. He states his motivations as being purely interested in power. He says, I'm the oldest son, therefore I should be the ruler of Wacknuck because it, you know, it's like a hereditary passing on thing. He views his estranged brother as being an illegitimate ruler. So at the end, they're very much left with three opposing parties, all of them mutually antagonistic to each other. And each of them seem to have the upper hand on our protagonists. For a proper resolution to occur, I think we would need some way for either the Spider-Man to defeat his estranged brother and overturn these purity laws, or we would need Joseph to triumph and finally kill all the mutants, or we would need our protagonist David to find a peaceful resolution or even seize power for himself in place of Joseph. But instead, they hide inside a cave, everyone dies, and they fly away to the Southern Hemisphere. Okay, so I see your point. Because of the Sealander's arrival, what you're calling the Deus Ex Machina, many of the plot points are not really resolved, but rather dissolved, you might say. They just kind of get rid of the problems rather than solving them. They cut the Gordian knot, as it were. Therefore, it's a deus ex machina, right? Yes. In a word, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But isn't it the case that in a deus ex machina, the god figure, whether it's a real god or not, should restore society back to some kind of equilibrium. They'll make everything right again. But that definitely isn't really what happens here. The Sealanders are no fundamentally different than the Waknakoi, as we've already established. They still believe in the superiority of their own race and the right to exclude anyone unlike them. That's not really a deus ex machina. That's just a, we've got bigger guns than you. 
Well, I agree there is something deeply unsettling about them. Just from a reader perspective, they aren't a noble group of people. They kill anyone they consider lower than them, just indiscriminately. It's a profoundly anti-humanistic view. It kind of reminds me of X-Men comic books, you know, the alternate realities where Magneto wins and is king of the world. So I think you might be onto something here that on an ideas level, at least, we are left in an ambiguous place. The god didn't descend from the sky to resolve everything. It really just introduced further complications. It seems to be the point of the book in general, I think, that there is no magical resolution to be had such that we get from a deus ex machina in which everything returns to a perfect equilibrium. Life is nasty, brutish, and short. A war of all against all, as Thomas Hobbes would put it. And whenever a superior species comes along, they will, as a matter of course, destroy inferior ones. The Sealander woman even acknowledges that this will happen to them in turn. She says, quote, Sometime there will come a day when we ourselves shall have to give place to a new thing. Very certainly we shall struggle against the inevitable, just as these remnants of the old people do. We shall try with all our strength to grind it back into the earth from which it is emerging, for treachery to one's own species must always seem a crime. We shall force it to prove itself, and when it does, we shall go. As by the same process, these are going. And I find this a really curious note to end on. Should we be comforted by this? You know, be, it's been playing our little role in the evolution of history as it, as it goes through its potentially infinite stages? Or should we be disconcerted by this? Should we be horrified by this? And should we feel defeated by this? I think it's very ambiguous how we should feel about it. And for me, I think that's an appropriate ending for an post-apocalypse. We're uncertain about what's to come. Our book next week is When the People Fell by Cordwainer Smith, about a world where China is the only survivor of a nuclear blast and their attempts to colonize Venus. If you're listening on Spotify, go ahead and follow us to be notified whenever we publish a new episode. iTunes, leave a review. It helps the podcast grow. Finally, if you want to share a book you have read and loved, send it to genrepodcast at gmail.com. Talk to you later, Bob and John. Talk to you later, John Zach. Talk to you later, Zach and Bob. <laughs>